All right, well, in fifth grade, at the elementary school I attended, every other week, immediately following lunch, there was an event called Religious Release. Now, this was public school, but for those students who were religiously inclined, um, you had an option where you could be excused from regular class and go to this kind of class on wheels just outside of the school. Now, I was in fifth grade, and so I had no interest in religion whatsoever. I wasn't raised in a Christian home, so I had no concern about God or, or the things of God. In fact, in fifth grade, I didn't care much about anything except for Nikki Schaefer. Yeah, Nikki Schaefer was my fifth grade crush. I had one every year. <laughs> so it just so happened that Nikki Schaefer attended religious release, so I decided it would be a good look for me to attend religious release to learn about religion. Well, and I don't, I don't remember much about this religious release except for the fact that these teachers were very kind to me and they constantly talked a lot about Jesus dying for my sins. But then there was this one time when I was walking through the park on my way home from 7-Eleven and I was approached by this kind of swarm of kids that kind of approached me like bees and they had pamphlets in their hand. And one of these kids came up to me and said to me, hey, you're going to hell if, you, if you're not born again. And I remember thinking to myself, what? what are you crazy? No one could be born twice. But he persisted to tell me that if I didn't trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins, that, that I was going to go to hell and that I needed to be born again. So I took his pamphlet and I walked home, figuring nothing of it. Well, then there was this one time uh, when I was approached by a friend of mine who asked me if I wanted to attend his youth group. Well, I had never attended a youth group before, but this guy told me that there was going to be girls, games, and grub the trifecta, so of course I was in. Now, I don't remember much about this experience other than this one thing. There was this massive cross that sat in the middle of the room, and the youth pastor handed out these little two-by-two-inch papers and a pushpin, and he told us to write down on the little paper all of the sins that we've committed. And I remember thinking to myself, on this little paper? I'm going to need like 300 pieces of paper. But anyway, after we had attempted to write down all the dirt we did, he told us to take the paper and, and, and pin it to the cross so that the papers were touching each other. And then this youth pastor, like some magician, came and he lit the bottom of the cross with the paper and it just poof, flew up in smoke. And I was like, whoa, that's crazy. And I remember thinking two things at that time. One, this seems like a fire hazard with all these children in the room. And, and two... How did the paper burn up that quickly? Well, I would later find out that there was burning paper, uh, burning powder in the paper. It's called flash paper. And then finally, there was this time when my mother's friend, Elaine, a middle-aged uh, businesswoman who used to work for the Rams, the football team, invited me on a picnic. And it was there at this picnic where she shared the good news of Jesus Christ with me. And when she shared it with me, it was the first time that everything made sense where my eyes were open to the truth, where my, my ears were tuned to this wonderful message that Jesus died for my sins to bring me into a right relationship with him. And it was that moment when I repented of my many sins, where I turned and trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior. What's, time con what's sometimes confusing for me on, on this side of my conversion is whose evangelistic work was most effective in terms of my conversion? Well, it might seem on the surface that it was Elaine, the upper-class businesswoman who cared enough about the gospel to take this kind of broken street kid on a picnic to share the beauty of the gospel as she pushed it into the soil of my heart. 
Well, maybe it was the kind teachers from Religious Release who were so willing to engage me with the message of the gospel that they shared it with me in public school. Well, maybe it was the crazy kid in the park who was bold enough to confront me about my sin and tell me I needed to be born again or I was going to hell. Or maybe it was the awkward youth pastor who so desperately tried to illustrate the beauty of the great exchange, Jesus's death on the cross to burn up all of my sins. Well, the truth is, all of them were effective in evangelism. Though I responded in faith and repentance when Elaine preached the gospel to me, though my conversion was in every way caused by Jesus himself, he used these various people to effectively sow the seed of the gospel into my heart. Though I didn't respond to the first three, I eventually did respond. And you see, this is the mystery of evangelism. It's always effective. And I would go so far as to say it's always fruitful because it always providentially produces God's intended purposes, which means that the effectiveness or the fruitfulness is not contingent upon you. It is God himself who conditions the soil of the heart, who makes us ready and receptive to receive God's word. And it is God himself who regenerates and gives us the gift of repentance and faith. So though we evangelize, if that person is open, if they respond, it is owing all to God alone. But we are responsible to do the work of evangelism. The question is, what if I never responded? What if the person never approached me effectively? Would I be, would their evangelism be any less fruitful? Now, we often ask this question because we confuse faithful evangelism with fruitful evangelism. We often confuse fruitful evangelism with the results of conversion. But those two things are different. Listen, we are faithful in evangelism when we follow God's command to do the work of evangelism. Now, just in case you didn't know, God calls all Christians to do the work of evangelism. We see that clearly in the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 19 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you to the end of the age. The Great Commission begins with this statement, Go therefore, which is a command. It's not an option. You don't get to pick and choose. You have to do it. God commands you to do it. And making disciples is really this two-part process. It begins with the work of evangelism. And if that person is converted by God, then we must teach that person everything they need to know to obey the commands of God. And when you do evangelism, when you do call people to repent and believe, we are being faithful whether they respond in repentance and belief or not. So if God commands all Christians to do the work of evangelism, to be faithful in the work of evangelism, it's probably pretty important that we ask this question. What is evangelism? What does it entail? Well, I try to keep it really simple. Evangelism is essentially three things in one, okay? I'm gonna give you three C's. I'm a big alliteration guy. Michael Lawrence probably likes to parse verbs. 
I like to do alliteration. So three C's, okay? It's communication, it's content, and it's a call. But to state it better, it's communicating specific content with a call to action. Okay, so let's begin first with the content, the necessary ingredients to make this specific content. The content is the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. But what does the gospel entail? Well, I'll give you a a bit of a comprehensive framework. The gospel is the good news that God is the creator of everyone and everything. Therefore, he has the authority over everyone and everything. Which means then that the laws that God uses to govern the world that he created, we who are his creatures are to live under and submit to the laws of God perfectly. What God says is right is right. What he deems is wrong is wrong. There's no disputing it because it's his world and his rules. But man, in his desire to be autonomous, has attempted to usurp the authority of God and has rebelled against God and his governing laws, choosing to do our own thing and making our own way. But here's the the, the bad part. The penalty of breaking the laws of God in the world that he created is death. And because all people break the laws of God, we're all condemned to death. And here is the sweet and beautiful part. God's solution to a rebellious people against God and his laws was to send his only son, Jesus, who obeyed those laws perfectly, to be a sacrifice, to die in the place for the penalty of our law-breaking. And the promise of God is that if we repent and believe, if we trust in Jesus and his sufficient sacrifice for our sins, then though we deserve death, because of our law-breaking, we'll be saved. Okay? So that's, that's a comprehensive gospel. But I'm going to give you the dumb, simple one. God created. Man sinned. Jesus provided. We must turn. That is the content of the gospel. But for the gospel to be evangelistic, the content must be communicated Preaching the gospel requires communication. Romans 10, 13 through 15 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. That is the gospel. So evangelism, if the content and communication is is to be evangelistic, it must be verbal or written or or signed. There must be a communication element to it. But whatever the medium is for it to be evangelistic, it has to be communicated. This is why, brothers and sisters, the statement, preach the gospel every day, and if you must use words, is a bogus statement. It's a bogus statement because it seeks to Uh, put love and good works on the same level as the gospel, but it would be wrong to do that. Though Christians are called to love and good works, those things are not the gospel. And finally, communicating the content for that to be evangelistic, it must come with a call. But this call is not simply an invitation. You see, an invitation is something that you can decline It is something that you can say, ah, I'm not really feeling dinner with you. I'm going to RSVP. I'm not going. Okay? The evangelistic call is summons. 
It is a summons. It is to, re- to, to reject or to ignore or not comply to the summons of God is to be punishable as contempt by the righteous judge in his cosmic court. So we don't make this call with, the, with an open-ended invitation that people may or may not reject. It's a summons that must be obeyed. Acts 17.30 says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And that should change the way we communicate the content. There should be a call to action, a call for them to respond to the content that you're communicating. So whatever you thought evangelism was, from maybe looking at YouTube videos or or whatever the case may be, this is what evangelism is. It is to communicate the content of the gospel while giving them a call to action. And because we live in a post-truth world where definitions are always up for grabs, the concept of evangelism, even within the church, is a bit all over the place. So just to help crystallize what biblical evangelism is, I think it's often helpful to explain what evangelism is not. Okay? So I'm going to give you three C's. Again, evangelism is not coercing people. Okay? Though the gospel is a summons a message that demands a response, we don't force anyone to respond. We don't manipulate people to respond. We don't clickbait people into responding. And we sure do not cancel people if they don't respond. Listen, the gospel is a different kind of message than anything else in this world. And the way Christians are to communicate the message is different from anything else in this world. So, for example, we are currently in probably the most progressive city in America. So, if you're here from out of town, welcome to Portland, the most hyper-progressive city in America. It's a context where people push their ideological messages, their political messages, and their social messages all day long. In fact, as you were driving to this church this morning, you were likely bombarded with all of their messages. And if you don't comply to their ideological, social, or political messages, they will burn this city down. They've done it before in an attempt to force you to embrace their messages or they'll cancel you. But that's not what we do in evangelism. Our job is to not be pushy with our presentation, but to be prayerful. We don't impose the gospel on the wills of people by using power dynamics or even policy. We pray. We summons people and we pray because we believe that prayer is more powerful than all those things combined. Secondly, evangelism is not convincing people. Okay? And tread lightly on here, but the apostle Paul in 1 Peter or in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 1 through 5 says, "And I When I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Our job is to not communicate uh, or convince people with clever speech and worldly wisdom. 
This is why we don't put all of our emphasis on being culturally relevant, and I would even say contextualizing, if it is to bypass the word of God and the wisdom of God. If we do that, then really it, it only takes someone else who's a little bit more crafty with their speech, who's a little bit more hip to culture, who's got a big up on you in terms of wisdom to persuade you or convince you to walk away from the decision that you made in the first place. So we don't do that. God only calls us to give the ordinary message of the gospel with ordinary means while trusting in the power of the spirit to do the work. Okay? And evangelism is also not apologetics. Okay? Now, we don't convince people through apologetics. Do I think apologetics is a good thing? Yes. I love apologetics. Is it helpful? Absolutely. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter to always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks to give you the reason for the hope that you have. But defending the faith is not the same as evangelizing. Apologetics deals with worldview issues. Evangelism deals with sin and soul issues. And listen, it will do you no good to use your apologetic method to kick the legs off of someone's worldview if you don't provide them the gospel as a pillow to fall on. So evangelism is not the same as apologetics. We don't convince people through worldly wisdom or even apologetics. And thirdly, evangelism is not comforting. We don't offer a partial and truncated message with religious platitudes because it's comfortable for people to embrace. Evangelism is not simply telling people that, you know, Jesus loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. That's not evangelism. Though it is true, God does have a plan for your life. That is not evangelism. In fact, to follow Jesus requires that you pick up your cross daily, as we've already talked. And to be sure, God has never promised that this life would be an easy life. No, he promises that as a Christian, your life will be marked by suffering and trials. In fact, he uses the suffering and the trials as a means to grow you in, into becoming a better Christian. But we can endure. We can endure the trials and the suffering because of what awaits us. And we can do that in joy. So don't water down the content. Don't attempt to sand off the rough, the rough parts of God's demands Make the gospel, to, to make the gospel more accessible or relevant or, or comfortable for people to digest. And then remember, evangelism is not a decision. Don't pipe them into that decision-making machine. We know how that ends up. Don't do that because it seems like it's easier or it sounds more palatable. When you do that, you actually preach a different gospel. And Paul gives us this massive warning in Galatians 1.5. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. To preach a truncated gospel built on comfort and accessibility, void of repentance and faith, is to preach a false gospel, which you put yourself in jeopardy when you do that. And more importantly, you forfeit the power of the gospel to affect meaningful and lasting change. 
There will be no conversion to Christ if you evangelize in a way that creates you know, false comforts and, and false assurance based on comfort. So having this kind of understanding of what evangelism is by defining what evangelism is and, and looking at what it's not, I want us to look closely at how we are to evangelize. Practical side of it. What does our evangelism look like or what should it look like? So I got three more C's for you, okay? Our evangelism should be clear. Make sure people understand what you're saying. Make sure you explain the gospel clearly. You know, sometimes we get so nervous that when we finally get the opportunity, maybe you're, you're sitting in, in, in the barber's chair and you've been waiting for like four years for God to open up an opportunity to, to preach the gospel. And then it comes and you're just like, blah, 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 blah. it just all gets thrown out because you don't know what to say in that moment. Slow down, slow down, be clear, be coherent. You're talking about the most important thing, the most significant thing in their life, even if they don't know it. So take your time. And listen, one of the most effective ways to be clear when these opportunities avail themselves is to daily rehearse the gospel. As Christians, we should be doing this already. You should be reminding yourself of the gospel and the implications of the gospel every day. You should be reminding your brothers and sisters of the gospel every day. And that's what we do on Sundays when we come together. We talked about this earlier. We share the gospel. We sing the gospel. We declare the gospel. The more we are saturated in the gospel, the better we will communicate it when we're, giving the, when we're given these opportunities to evangelize. Okay? Second, be compassionate. Do you have a genuine heart to see others come to Jesus? I mean, ask yourself this question. Why are you evangelizing in the first place? Is it only because God commands you to do so? Is it out of some sort of obligation only? Are you doing that as some sort of religious work only? Is your evangelism all message and, and no heart? All data points and no love. Do you even care about lost people? Last year, I found myself in a coffee shop just outside of, of Portland. And I could tell right away that it was a Christian coffee shop because of all the Bibles and all of the left-behind books. <laughs> so as I was sitting there preparing my sermon for the following week, I heard this group of men sitting next to me. And, and I could tell based on the way that they were talking that they were a church staff. There's likely three or four pastors and a couple worship leaders. Anyway, I, I overheard them talking about Portland, specifically about Antifa. Now, this was right around the time when they were protesting and rioting every night. And as I listened to what these church folks were saying, I was completely discouraged. I consistently heard them mention, you know, those kinds of people are the scum of the earth. Those kinds of people are not deserving of human freedoms. They should all be shipped off to another country. And finally, one of the pastors, he actually said this out loud. He said, you know what we need to do is we need to drive downtown and we need to shoot all the protesters in the kneecaps. Not kill them, just shoot them in the kneecaps so that they can't run around and protest in Portland anymore. And when I heard them say that, 
sitting in this Christian coffee shop, I literally just sat there and cried. To hear a church staff, pastors even, talk about image bearers like this was shocking to me. Because out of all people, these folks should have understood the compassion of God. They should have known and, and felt the radical compassion of God, that if God had not intervened in their life, there they would be also. How quickly did they forget the radical mercy of God that they received from him? Do you have a compassion for lost people? Is your heart heavy for lost people? Yes, we are commanded to evangelize, but the new heart that God gives us is a, is a heart that should be ready to, to freely distribute God's radical compassion to people through his gospel. I mean, someone cared enough to share the gospel with you. Should you not care enough to share the gospel with other sinners? If your heart is heavy for sinners, if you have compassion for people, you will evangelize not out of obligation, not only because God commands it, because you want to. You want to see people experience the liberation that you've experienced, the, the freedom from being entangled so deeply in your sin that it's choking the life out of you. You want that for people. If your heart is heavy and full of compassion, you will evangelize in a way that is honest and sincere about seeing lost people that come to faith. And listen, people can tell when you're selling something or when, when, when you're genuinely desiring to help. The, the, the marketing uh, level schemes, the multi-level marketing schemes, this has made everybody aware of the pitch. And we, we hear the pitch, we hear it coming, and we run. I don't want what you're selling me. I know you're just coming because you want me to buy it, okay? And people also can tell when you're presenting something solely out of obligation. But when you offer people something from a genuine place of love and help, they will feel it. They will feel it. We should view people as desperate and needy even if they don't know it. I mean, Christians spend so much time focusing on this dark and wicked world that we live in. And though it is that, but we spend so much time focusing on it that we forget that part of the reason why the world is dark and evil is because of us. Because of what we've done and how we've contributed to it. But God had compassion on us and sent someone to tell us the good news. So don't view the world as a war zone. View it as a hospital. We need to bring the message of the gospel with hearts full of compassion to a broken and sick sin world. And finally, be confident. Be confident. But don't be confident in your own strength or your own wisdom or your own gifts or your methodology or your six steps. Be confident in God's work of conversion. Pray, trust, and rest in the Holy Spirit to do the work of conversion. You remember, conversion is God's work. Regeneration is God's work. Our work 
is evangelism. We are nothing more than messengers bringing the beautiful message of the gospel to a sin-sick world. God is the physician of the heart. God is the surgeon giving life to dead people. I don't care how good of a preacher you are. Your preaching is not good enough to raise dead people to life. You can't do it. Or how effective of a communicator you are. I don't care how many TED Talks you do. You'll never master the art of communication to cause dead people to come to life. You must trust in the sufficiency of God's work to resurrect people from death to life. And listen, this reality should fuel your evangelism. It should fuel it. When you realize that God is the one responsible for converting people, all the pressure, all the anxiety, all the worry about whether you're going to say the right thing at the right time or if it's going to masterfully unlock the human heart or if you somehow miss the opportunity, this once-in-a-lifetime shot that you fumbled. You don't have to worry about those things. All of those things go away. It's liberating to know that God is the one working or not working or not working. So you don't need to feel insecure if you evangelize and there's a lack of receptivity. Because conversion is not actually evangelism. You could be completely faithful. Faithful in your call to evangelism even when it seems like there's no fruit. You can know that the God who is sovereign and, and is supernaturally orchestrating in the lives of all people will bring to completion what he has started, what he has done. And even if, it, even if we don't see the kind of fruit that we're hoping for, we can trust that God is at work. We can know that God uses people like teachers in a public school, like a crazy kid in the park, like a, a zealous youth pastor or a middle-aged soccer mom. We indiscriminately and confidently throw the seed. And if God has regenerated, then God will bring about the growth. God is the cultivator of the soil. God is the protector of the plant. And he is the producer of the fruit. Our work is simply to be faithful in evangelism and trust all of the results to God alone. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to see the beauty in your handiwork, in your sovereign work, in your mysterious work of converting people. And we pray, O oh Lord and God, that you would help us to find deep joy and satisfaction in some small way of participating by preaching the good news of the gospel. We pray, O oh Lord and God, that you would protect us from hearts that are cold and callous, that you would invigorate us to be ambassadors of your gospel, to be radically passionate to move in confidence knowing that you will do all the work. Help us to rest every confidence on that reality. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.